So we are finishing up today our series on the Song of Songs. We've been in the Song of Songs for a little over a month now. Today we're going to look at a passage in the Song of Songs chapter 8. Uh, before we do that, wanted to mention, so as part of this series, we set up a couple of forums where we could answer some specific questions related to the issues raised by the series, things about sex, about intimacy, about marriage, and specifically, one of those forums is for people who are single. Well, we had to cancel it last Saturday because of the weather. We have rescheduled it. It's going to be March 21st, 7 o'clock here at Trailhead. And if you are interested, if there's a question you would like to have answered, we've set up a, a number. You can text a question in. Those questions will come to us, and then we can answer those at the forum. Um, the questions come in anonymously. So if it's something sensitive, if it's something that, um, that you wouldn't feel comfortable at the forum raising your hand and asking, Send them in, and uh, we will try to cover as many of those as we can. So the number's up here on the screen. Write that down. You still have time to send in questions, and we will try to get those answered at the forum. Last week, uh, as many of you know, we had to cancel our services again because of the weather. However, we were able to record the sermon from last week, so we would encourage you to go online. Uh, You can go to our website, and you can listen or view. There's also a video available of last week's sermon, and so check that out. And that'll get you caught up. All right, Song of Songs, chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you if you would grab that. Open it up. Uh, In those Bibles, we're going to be on page 564. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. That's our gift to you. We would love for you to have a Bible that you can read on your own, um, not just on Sundays. So take that Bible uh, as a gift from us. Song of Songs, chapter 8. We're going to start in verse number six. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The word of the Lord. So uh, I'm not much of a a chef, just to be honest. Um, I don't really cook a lot. The things I do, I try to keep it pretty simple. If I'm going to bake something, it's probably going to start in a box. Okay. Um, Most of the recipes I use start with poke holes in the cover. Okay, um, but there are a couple things that I like to make, a couple dishes that I, I think I'm not too bad at. One of them is lasagna. Um, started making it when I was a kid because it's really simple, right? You, got, you put down the noodles, some sauce, some cheese, layer it, layer it, layer it, and then you cook it. You can't mess it up too easily. Um, and so, so I like to make lasagna, and one day I was in the grocery store, and I saw some lasagna noodles that sat on the box that you didn't have to cook them first. So it saves a step that you just put the noodles in, the sauce and the cheese, and you bake it. And somehow, I I don't know, but supposedly that would prepare the noodles just by doing that. And I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Save me some time. Um, You know, anything that makes it faster is better. So, and I looked at it and I was like, now, am I reading this right? Because I wanted to make sure that I was going to, you know, this was going to be okay. So I bought these noodles. And so I make this lasagna. And I, and I put the noodles in, the sauce, the cheese, layered it up, all good. Put it in the oven. Checked it after like, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. Checked it. And it, they, they didn't seem quite done. You know, they seemed a, a little bit tough. And I was like, okay, maybe it just needs a little more time. Put it in a little bit longer. They, it, it was not good. Okay, um, so I'm, I'm trying to eat this lasagna, and it was, like, I mean, it was like rubber. And I was like, what is going on here? Did I maybe, okay, I must not have understood. I grabbed the wrong box or something. Did I not get those? So I go and I get the box, and I'm looking at it, and I see that it says, you don't have to cook these. Put them in the oven with water. Oh, Okay. So there's my problem. I left out a very essential ingredient. 
Without the water, without the moisture from the water, they were, they were not going to bake in the oven correctly. They were just going to harden even worse than what they were already. So see, this is an important lesson in cooking. And uh, I think it's an important lesson in life that every ingredient is important. Some ingredients are more important than others. If you leave out something essential, it's not going to work right. Does this make sense? Are you with me on this? So we've been talking as we read through and, and as we've looked at the Song of Songs about all these issues related to relationships, marriage, singleness, sex, all these things. But there's an essential ingredient that we're going to talk about this morning. And, and it's so essential that, that if we don't catch this, that we can do everything else that we've talked about. But if we don't catch this ingredient, it's not quite going to work. You got me? So don't think of this as like the, the parsley sprinkled on top. This is essential to our understanding of what intimacy is, what it means, what the purpose of it is, okay? Now to understand this and, and to explain this fully, I, I need to make a pretty careful distinction, okay? We have talked, as we read through the Song of Songs, this is, this is a collection of, of ancient poetry, erotic poetry. It's about sex, Okay, and we've been very careful and very clear to say this is poetry about sex. It's not what we call an allegory. Okay, whoever wrote the poems did not write them saying these things that sound like they might be talking about people's bodies, but what they really had in mind was something else. Okay, it's not metaphors that actually all stand for something spiritual. It's really poetry about sex. But the distinction I need to draw here is between that word allegory, which is where something, everything stands for something else, and another term, which is kind of a theological, literary kind of a term, typology. And they're two different things. Okay, so let me try to explain it as best as I can without getting too technical here. An allegory, like I said, is where everything stands for something else. Where it doesn't really have a meaning on its own, the deeper meaning is what's real and true, okay? So, for example, when you were in high school, maybe you read um, Animal Farm by George Orwell, which is a novel that, that sounds like it's about pigs and, and horses and sheep, and they're trying to take over the farm, but your, your high school English teacher told you, this is not about pigs, this is about communism, okay? And so, there's pigs with names in the book, but they're actually Stalin and, and Trotsky. And okay, these, these all stand for something else. Everything is something different. Typology is different. Okay. Typology, we're talking about things that are real and they are what we say they are. But God, through his providence and through his wisdom created those real things which actually exist, which are what they are, but he created them to give us an understanding or an image or to kind of foreshadow something else. Okay, again, I'll give you another example. So when the ancient um, Jewish people were following, trying to follow God, he set up a system of sacrifices and through these sacrifices, they would sacrifice animals or, or bread or, or water or, or different things that they would sacrifice to God to try to get forgiveness, to get forgiveness, to get um, atonement for their sins. Now, these were real sacrifices. They actually took animals, killed them, sacrificed them to God. God actually responded to their sacrifices. Okay. What we find out later, after Christ comes, is that those sacrifices, which were all real and all happened and all existed, they were what they were, they also symbolized Christ and his sacrifice for us. So when he died on the cross, it was similar to the sacrifices that had been made, but it was greater. It was deeper. It was a bigger 
and more fulfilling sacrifice. So we call those sacrifices a type of Christ's fuller and greater and later sacrifice. Does this make sense? Are you following with me? So the difference is with typology, things are what they are, but God has also given them a deeper symbolic meaning as well. Okay. So saying that, the piece that we have to understand, the the ingredient that mixes all of this together, everything about relationships, intimacy, marriage, all of that, is that marriage is a type. It's a symbol. It's an image of something. It's a symbol of the gospel. Now, I want you to understand, and I want to be clear, I'm not making this up, okay? Um, If you still got your Bible in front of you, turn over to the book of Ephesians, okay? Again, if you're using one one of the Bibles from, from the seat in front of you, it's on page 979. So I want you to see this, okay? This is not me. I didn't sit down and think like, oh, that would be cool if, okay? The Apostle Paul, inspired by God, writes this letter to a church in Ephesus and he talks about marriage. And in talking about marriage, in Ephesians chapter five, verse 31, he says this, therefore, and you notice the quotation marks, this is a quote. He's quoting something from Genesis when God first created men and women. And Paul says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So he's talking about marriage, this relationship where two people come and and as two people, they join together and they no longer are two. They are then at some point in some way that we don't fully understand. They, They cease to become two and they become one, but they're still two people, but they're also one together, joined together. And it's confusing. And in fact, Paul goes on to say, this mystery is profound. I don't fully understand it. Okay, this is deep. This is hard to follow. This, the word profound there in the original Greek is megos, which means this is a mega mystery. Okay, this is, this is hard to figure. And if you're married, or if you've been married, or if you know anyone who is married, you would probably agree This mystery is profound. (laughs) Like marriage is a mystery. But here's what it is. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to, it is an image of marriage symbolizes Christ and the church. The way that two people come together and become one, the, the, the union of two into one is a symbol of how believers become one with Christ. How the church is, and, and this, this terminology that is used throughout the New Testament, we are hidden in Christ. We are in him. We are one with him. We are his body. We are joined together. So marriage is what it is. Okay? If you are married, you really are married to someone. Okay? You really do have a relationship with that person. But your marriage also is a symbol, is an image of something greater, something bigger. The relationship between Christ and his church. Why is that important? Well, it matters because if we're going to talk about intimacy and we're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about marriage, then we have to understand this truth. Because any view of intimacy that discounts this truth is going to be half-formed. It's going to be, not to stretch the analogy too much, but half-baked. Okay, It's not going to come out right. It's It's an ingredient. It's the ingredient that makes it all make sense. And as we're going to see as we work through this, when we don't understand this, it can lead to very negative consequences within our relationships. 
Also, understanding this helps us answer a question, uh, a question that a lot of people have. If you ask most people, um, both in and out of church, what does the Bible say about sex? Most of them will probably answer you, what the Bible says about sex is don't do it, right? Um, Sex is a secret thing. It's a bad thing. It's a kind of a gross thing. That's not true. And I think we've seen that over the last few weeks as we've looked at what God says through the Song of Songs about sex, that God created it. He loves it. He created it for us to enjoy. But he is insistent on sex being in the proper context. And we could ask, well, why? Why is that such a big deal to God? Why is sex supposed to exist within a marriage relationship? And this is the answer. This is the answer because because sex is a part of marriage in which the two people join together. They, They make their covenant, their promise to each other known to one another. It's a powerful illustration of what marriage truly is. We use the word covenant because it's more, it's more than just a, a, a legal arrangement. Although it is that, marriage is a legal arrangement, but it's more. And, and it's more than just a romantic, um, flowery, sort of passionate love kind of relationship. Although it, it is that as well, but it's more. And by using the word covenant, it reminds us that it's a promise that involves all of us all of who we are. And the reason God is so insistent on it being sex being used within that context is because that context is a picture. It's a picture of his love for us. So when you take sex outside of that context, you lose the power of it. You lose the picture of a covenant relationship. You lose the, the true understanding of what it really means, and you get this, this sort of half-formed version. So, if this is true, if, if God created marriage to be a, a reflection of Christ's love for the church, if, if marriage, if, if intimate human relationships are both what they are, the relationships that they really are, and symbols of God's love for his church, then what does this passage from this poem tell us about God and about his love for us? What what does it say about marriage? But more than that, what does it say about this deeper meaning? Because it has implications for both. So let's take a look. Verse 6, again, it says... Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. In this portion of the poem, this is a bride addressing her her husband or her soon-to-be husband. She's talking to the man she loves, and she is asking here, make this commitment to me. The seal in in ancient Israel, the ancient Hebrew kings had a, a ring, that had a seal on it. It was like their their image, kind of like their logo. And they would press it into things to leave their mark, to show their ownership. This is mine. And there were serious, serious ramifications when their seal was on something, it belonged to the king. And you couldn't take that. You couldn't try to, uh, you know, appropriate appropriate that for yourself. If they had a letter and, and they sealed it, no one was allowed to open it except the person it was addressed to. The seal was a powerful, powerful symbol of ownership, of possession, and here of commitment. The bride is asking her husband, seal me, let me be your seal. Show that you are committed to me, that I am yours in a way that cannot be broken, in a way that cannot be undone. Make a commitment to me. We as human beings have a strong, strong desire for commitment. We want to know 
that we can have a relationship, whether it be a marriage relationship or a friendship relationship, a family relationship. We want to know that the people who say they love us are committed to us. And not just verbally. We want to know that they are fully committed. Look, she says, as a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm, both Internally, we understand the heart to be a symbol of emotions. Internally, commit to me. And as a seal upon your arm, and and the word for arm there also has implications for strength, for power. Physically, show me your commitment. Show me that you are committed to me fully, inside and outside. Emotionally and physically, a whole life commitment. And what does that tell us about God? What is true about God? God is committed to us. The image of a seal is used often in the New Testament to talk about what God does. When we believe in him, that his Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a seal on our lives. That when we are in a relationship with God, it is an unbreakable relationship, not because of our efforts to maintain it, but because of his strength to hold on to us. God is fiercely committed to us. God loves us with a love that cannot be broken, cannot be defeated. In verse 7, It says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. There is nothing on this earth that can stop God's love for us. Love, it says again in verse six, for love is strong as death. Who can possibly say that their love is as strong as death, that their love will go on beyond death? death. Well, there is one, one man who walked the earth, who died and then conquered death. That's Jesus Christ. He died and came back. He defeated death and he did it because of his love for us. His love is strong as death. And jealousy is fierce as the grave. Jealousy is an interesting word to use here. Especially if we're talking about God. Because we hear the word jealousy and it has a very negative connotation usually. Like I think of jealousy as a... a, Okay, like that's something I tell my kids not to be, right? I try to teach them not to get jealous. And yet here it's... It's listed, it's, it's a part of this poem in a positive way. And throughout the scriptures, God actually refers to himself as a jealous God. Now, if something's a negative trait, how can it be applied to the God that we believe to be a perfectly holy God? So what that tells us is there's actually a good kind of jealousy, that there is actually a positive type of jealous love. And what it is, is it's that jealousy that says, you are mine and I don't want anyone else to have you. It's that jealousy within a marriage, within a relationship that says, we are committed, I want you to be committed to me and I don't want anyone else to pull you away. I don't want you to stray. I want our marriage, our bond, our union to stay committed. I want you to have eyes only for me. And as long as that leads you into a deeper love for each other, rather than into manipulation or emotional abuse, that's a good thing. It's good to want your marriage to be committed. That's a good thing. And God is jealous for us. He wants us to love him and him alone. He wants those who who claim to be followers 
of Christ to pursue him above all else. See, we, um, we have this tendency in our lives, those of us who, well, b- both believers and, and those who don't believe have a tendency to go looking elsewhere to fulfill desires that only God can fulfill. Do you understand what I mean by this here? Let me, let me explain. Okay, so um, I have this deep desire in my heart to be approved, to know that, that I am loved and that I am loved unconditionally. Okay, I want to know that there is someone who looks at me, who knows me, who knows me completely, knows everything about me, and yet still loves me in spite of my flaws, in spite of my mistakes, in spite of the ugly parts of me. That desire can only be fulfilled by God. God is the only one who can truly approve of me Knowing all my sin, knowing all my problems, he's the only one who can ever totally unconditionally love me. And yet, and yet, because my heart is turned so much, I go looking for that approval elsewhere. I, I, I take it into my relationships. I take it into my friendships. I take it into my marriage. And I'm constantly asking, do you approve of me? Am I okay? Do I measure up? And, and it can lead a person to, to hop from relationship to relationship to try to find the person who will approve. It can lead a person who is in a relationship to look outside of that for that approval. And what it does, when I am doing that, when you are doing that, when we're looking for something that only God can fulfill from someone other than God, it places the weight of that expectation, the weight of that desire on that person, and it presses down on them because they can't fulfill those desires. And you're asking them in that relationship to fulfill something they cannot fulfill, to, to do something they were not created to do, and maybe for a while they might, but eventually it will, it will crack. And you're crushing them and you're turning away from the one who actually wants to fulfill that desire. Are you with me on this? When we take our desires that can be fulfilled by God to someone else, we damage two relationships our relationship with that person and our relationship with God. We damage the relationship with that person because we're asking them to do something they cannot do and should not do. We're damaging our relationship with God, not in the sense that we're going to break it. It cannot be broken. We just said that. God is the one who maintains it. God is the one who seals it. But it... it, robs us of the deeper joy of understanding all that that relationship could be. It, it prevents us from having those desires filled by the one who can fill them. Does this make sense? Are you with me? God is jealous for us, not because he needs us. God is jealous for us because he knows that we need him. And that if we go anywhere else, we're going to come up empty. He's jealous for us because of his love for us. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. This jealousy, this jealous love is powered by God and it's strong. It is a passionate love. God has displayed an amazing, passionate love for us. By the sacrifice of his own son for us, he has shown an incredible, fierce love. And most of us could could give testimony to in our own lives how we have pushed back from him, how we have run from him, how we have avoided that love, and yet he pursues us anyway with this fierce, 
passionate love that waters cannot quench, that floods cannot drown. And then here at the end of verse seven, it says, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. If someone seeking love were to try to purchase it, either financially or we could say in any way try to earn it by what they do, what they could give in exchange for love, we would look at that and we would say that is not right. Why? Why would we despise the idea of purchasing love? Why would we, and and on both ends, not just purchasing love, but giving love for money, for gain, for wealth? Why is that detestable to us? Because we know that love that is earned, love that is bought, is not real love, is it? You can't, you can't purchase affection, true affection. You can purchase the image of it, okay? You can buy pretend love. Someone will say they love you. They might do things that a person in love would do, but true love, love within, cannot come as a response to money, to favors, to status. That's not love. We know that. True love has to be given freely. To be loved, it must be given. This is the, the absolute very core of God's good news for us. The very core of what we call the gospel is that God loves us in a way that we cannot earn, that we never could earn. We don't deserve it. And we can't work ourselves up to a place where we could deserve it. We could never purchase it because we could never raise enough to earn it. And even if we could, it wouldn't be love. God doesn't ask us to buy his love. He gives it freely to us by his grace. And that is real love. It's a real love in a a very supernatural way. There is no human being. I mean, this is tough, but it's true. As much as we love that idea because it is stamped on us from God, as much as we believe that real true love should be completely and truly unconditional, that it should be given totally out of a heart of pure motives, all of us, as true broken human beings, still have within us just a little bit of wanting to get something from love. Are you following with me on this? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, as much as I might say that my love is totally and completely um, pure, that it's motivated solely by love and nothing else, there's that part of me that likes how love makes me feel. There's those desires that we talked about earlier that I, 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 I want to have fulfilled. Only God has a truly unconditional love. He expects nothing from us in return. His love is not earned. It, it's, it's simply something that we believe in. We don't work for it. We just trust in it. We just believe him. He doesn't ask us to do anything to try to get it. And it's not like he's giving us some of it. And then we have to work to get more of it. So it's not like, okay, I know God loves me. 
But if I work a little harder, maybe he will love me more. That God, God loves me, but he will love me more if I, or if I don't. You can't get more of God's love. You already have all of it. You just don't experience all of it. You can't earn more of it, but what you can do, what I can do, is push deeper into it. I can gain a fuller understanding of it. I can have a richer experience of God's love. By leaning into his love, by obeying him, I don't earn more love. I don't get his love by what I do, but I understand it more fully. And it benefits me deep within my soul, not because I've earned it. It's already there and it's given to me freely. But the more I pursue him, the, the more it flows through me and the more it shapes my experience of life. It, we've been talking as, we, as we've worked through the Song of Songs about these different ways that we should pursue intimacy, that we should power intimacy, protect intimacy, human intimacy. We can also pursue our intimacy with God. We can seek after him to know more of him, to know him more deeply. Uh, but that raises the question, why? I mean, why, why would I want to? Why pursue God so deeply? I've, I've got human relationships and they're people that I can see. They seem much more, <clears throat> much more immediately satisfying why would I want to press into this creator God who I, okay, maybe I believe you, but it, I mean, why, why is this somehow better? Okay, first, we pursue love with God because he first loved us. Okay, John, the apostle John said this. He said, we love him because he first loved us. Our love for God is a response to God's love. Okay, we don't get God to love us. We don't do something, like we said, we don't earn it. We don't activate it. Okay, we're not flipping a switch to get God's love turned on. He loves us. And as a response to that, we love him. But beyond that, beyond that, we pursue love with him and we push deeper into that love with him because we can understand or we should understand that he is the only one, the only one who can truly fulfill these deep, deep desires in our heart. We have desires. We, we want comfort. We want power. We want control. We want approval. We want these things and we go seeking for other people to fulfill them. And they can't, but God can. God has a love that can fulfill the deepest, deepest needs, that can heal the deepest hurts. When we talk, we, we talk about marriage being a picture of God's love. <clears throat> we say that God created marriage to be an image of the gospel. I completely understand that for, for many of you, for many of us, we, we, we want to push back against that. Because we look at, at marriage, marriages we've seen, marriages we've been a part of maybe, and we don't see an image of anything good. I, I mean, some of, us, some of us are coming out of divorce, this was supposed to be a covenant that was sealed and it was broken. Some of us are, are in a marriage that it's, we're still married, but, but it's bad. We haven't broken the seal, but there's times when we wish we could because it's just not, 
And, and this is a picture of God's love. We don't, we don't see it. Some of us have dealt with abuse. The idea that, that sex should be a, a symbol of God's covenant love for us is totally foreign because we've been abused sexually or we have abused sex in our own lives. Some of us think about marriage and we think about not commitment, but abandonment. <clears throat> maybe, maybe the family you grew up in, you saw a broken marriage. And, and, and so here's, here's Paul saying that marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And you're thinking either he's way off or if that's a picture of the gospel, I'm not sure I want any part of it. So first, listen, we got to say this. Nobody has a marriage that looks perfectly like God's love for us. Okay? Nobody. There are no perfect marriages. All of us are broken. All of us are broken. And partly, look, it's a, it's a symbol. Okay? The symbol is two broken people who are coming together and trying to join together and they're becoming one, but they're still two broken people. And joining together in marriage does not fix your brokenness. Are we clear on that? Okay, because we get this in our minds sometimes. Sometimes this is the Disney version of marriage that two broken people come together and then, then by becoming married, they become whole. You complete me, right? That's not how it works. Two broken people come together, they're still broken. The image in marriage is pointing to something much greater. Us broken people, God who's a perfect God. God who's a perfect God reaching down to us who are broken and joining with us. Not making us perfect, but sharing his perfect love with us. So, within all of that hurt, that the idea, the thoughts of, of sex and relationships and marriage bring in so many of us, we have to understand that the only healing for that is within the greater love of God. So we can do things to make our marriages better, absolutely. We can, we can pursue intimacy in, in a way that makes our marriages a better reflection of God's love, absolutely. But we cannot fix our souls. We cannot find true gospel grace through another human being. This is, why, this is why we need the real thing, not just the symbol. Okay, let me, let me explain what I mean by that, okay? <clears throat> so, 10 years ago, Joni and I got married. And when we did, we exchanged rings, right? Not these actual rings, but that's just a picture. Um, <clears throat> we exchanged rings as a symbol, the rings symbolized our union. Kind of like the seal that the poet is talking about. It shows that I belong to Joni. Joni belongs to me. We are committed to each other. It's a symbol of our covenant. And I love it as a symbol. I wear it. When I see it, it reminds me of her. But all it is is a symbol. How bizarre would it be if I stopped talking to Joni and started spending all my time focusing on my ring. If when there were problems in our marriage, I decided the best way to fix those problems would be to go get my ring polished. Right? Um, I need to get, we're not getting along very well. Maybe I should get the ring resized. I'm not sure if I feel loved. I'll go talk to my ring about it. 
You would think I was insane, I hope. Because you would say, rightly so, that ring is a symbol. It's not your marriage. That ring is a symbol. It's not your wife. That ring is not going to give you what your wife only could give you. And that's true. But here's what we do in our heads. We take the symbol that God has provided us through marriage and we go looking to it to fulfill desires that only God can fulfill. We think that if, if we're not married, we think if only I were married, that would fix these things. If we are married, we think if only I could get my spouse to say this, to do this, that would fix me and my problems. But it's not true. It's not true. Only God can fulfill the God-shaped holes within us. Look, marriage, sex, relationships, intimacy, these are great things. These are beautiful things. These are wonderful gifts from God. But they are horrible gods. They cannot fulfill a role intended for God, our creator. So enjoy them, pursue them, but do not worship them. Find the fulfillment for your desires in God. Here's the maybe paradoxical thing about this, that when you do that, when you push into the gospel, to fulfill those desires, that what it actually does is it makes your other relationships better because you are no longer putting a weight on those relationships to do something they should not do. And instead you're free to just love those people with a love that then can mirror God's love for you. But you're not doing it to try to earn something. You're not trying to get something from it. Because you've ordered things correctly and you're worshiping God as God and you're enjoying your spouse or your friends as your spouse or your friends. So here's what we're going to do as we move into a time of reflection and we think about these things. We need to ask ourselves some questions that relate to this. First of all, where is it? What, what are those things that because of your deep desires within you, you're taking a, a desire that can only be fulfilled by God and you're placing it on someone else or something else. Maybe it's not a relationship, but you've got something that you are looking to, you are expecting, you are hoping will fulfill you. And the problem is by doing that, you've, you've messed up two relationships. Your relationship to that person and with God. So where is that? What are you putting a a God weight on that was never equipped or intended or created to handle that? How could you take that and, and, and give that instead to God? And then are you looking like this, this, hypothetical man offering for love all the wealth of your house? Are are you trying to earn love? Are you trying to earn God's love? Are you thinking that if I work hard enough, if I'm a, a, a good boy or a good girl, if I don't sin, then God will love me? Are you robbing God's grace of its power? Instead, what would it look like instead Instead of working to try to earn love, what would it look like instead to to push deeper into that love that's already there? God loves you. Stop trying to earn his love. What would that look like for you to push deeper into that? As you reflect on these things, we understand that when we talk about these issues, again, it, it can bring up deep hurt, deep pain, There's just a lot of stuff when we talk about sex and marriage and relationships. 
Uh, if you'd like us to pray with you or for you about them, or if you'd like to talk to somebody about it, we would encourage you on that card that's inside your bulletin. If you would fill that out, you can drop it in the box up here uh, by, on the communion table or in the basket on the way out the door. We will pray for those things as leaders of the church. We will pray for you. If you want to talk to somebody, we would be glad to have somebody sit down, have conversations with you about these things. <coughs> Maybe you're just wrestling with this idea that anyone, let alone the creator of the universe, could really love you in that kind of unconditional way. If you want to know more about that, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. I'm going to pray. We're going to move into a time of silent reflection. If you wish, you, you can pray. You can, you can reflect on these things. But ask yourself these questions. How can you push deeper into God's unconditional love for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. <clears throat> Father God, we love you. We know though that our love for you is a pales in comparison to your love for us. God, you love us with a love that is stronger than death. You pursued us when we were running far from you. So God, my prayer this morning is, is not that I could work harder to get more of your love, but rather that all of us here would, would awaken to that love, to that grace, that we would lean in so hard that we could feel that love working on those deep needs and deep desires in our heart. That we'd be free from seeking love in the places that can never fulfill, but instead would be able to enjoy a full, deep, rich understanding of you and who you are. God, I pray that you will shower your grace again on the hurt, on the pain, on the brokenness within us. And just open our eyes to the love of you and your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.